While different varieties of vehicles may look wildly different, they share many similarities at a digital level. Each protocol, from CAN to MIL standard 1553, is designed with a variety of trade-offs and real-world considerations in mind. These considerations create interesting features for cybersecurity professionals to consider. How do these different protocols support the needs of a particular vehicle? Why are these protocols designed in a particular way? In this episode, special guest Matt Rogers discusses what serial data buses are, how the nuances between them affect cyber attackers and defenders, and ways that we can introduce sensible cybersecurity control measures into fleet assets. Matt Rogers is a security researcher and PhD student at the University of Oxford working on the cybersecurity of fleet assets. Matt, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Ready to bore yeah. your viewers once more, Josh? <laughs> Well, um, I, I heard great things about your your conference talk of the of the same uh, same subject matter. And uh, rather than um, going and uh, and 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 watching a recording of it, I thought it would be uh, easier to just get you on the show to explain it uh, in in greater detail. So, thanks for thanks for coming on. I think we're basically exactly opposite sides of the world right now. Um, so uh, is, is it uh, it's dinner time there or well past dinner time, I think? It's uh, it's 7.41 p.m. You know, I, yeah. I prepped some yeah. dinner before this just so I was ready, good to go. No Perfect. stomach growls caught by the mic. So we got good blood sugar levels. We're all, we're all ready to rock. So um, great. Well, I think this episode will be a little bit more uh, technical and in the weeds, which, um, you know, I- I'm excited about because we, we've talked – kind of at a high level about how all of these fleet assets have tons of digital components in them and that there are ways of subverting them. And we talked a little bit about like what the effects look like, but digging a level deeper is really interesting um, because for a lot of folks in, you know, IT cybersecurity world, or even in ICS and SCADA, where they're embedded in kind of ethernet networks and familiar IP protocols and that sort of thing, things look quite different on a vehicle. And um, what was so interesting about your talk was that it talked about those differences, like why are these vehicles communicating over these protocols uh, that are quite different from what we see in other sort of technical fields and um, uh, in other uh, technology applications. And then from that, how do those differences create interesting features and landscapes for attackers and defenders? So I think uh, maybe one good place to start, and I think you'll agree with this because this is how you started your talk, uh, is, you know, just what are serial data buses and why are these things in lots of different kinds of vehicles? A serial data bus is really just a set of wires that's communicating bits across a ton of different computers that are in all of these vehicles uh, that I'm sure all of your podcast listeners love to talk about. Uh, but it's really just an efficient way of sending data with a computer instead of some sort of mechanical operation across tens. Uh, now you might even get a low number of hundreds and some luxury vehicles or you know, multiple buses as all of these subsystems are trying to communicate information so they can be more efficient. You know, It all started with things like diesel engines and trying to meet fuel guidelines. And now it's just it's cheaper. It weighs less, just more efficient overall. Yeah, and I mean, these things can control area networks invented like 1980 or something like that. But I think Bosch came up with the protocol. Yeah, like 1988 or something like that. Yeah, so so these are these are really old tried and true protocols. Um, they're also designed uh, in a way where in the physical world, you know, we a lot of us who think in the digital kind of domain, we don't think about physical transport too much. Um, uh, at least, you know, I, I haven't. And uh, but but. It turns out that the real world is pretty messy and there are all kinds of 
RF, radio frequency emanations and disturbances that can create errors uh, in these, in these, um, in the wires, in the physical level. And so um, tell me about how some of these protocols are designed to handle that harsh RF environment. Well, so the way CAN is designed to do it is it's actually uh, measuring the differential voltage. So there's two wires, they're in a twisted pair. Sometimes they're shielded, really just depends on how much money you're putting into the vehicle. Shielding obviously adds a bit of weight, adds a bit of cost. But basically, the fact that it's measuring both the high and low voltage means that if there's some sort of induced interference between those wires, they move up and down together, roughly in the same amount. So because they're measuring the difference between their voltages instead of the absolute value of either one, it basically just lets you account and not do these crazy bit flips. You know, like the the classic example of, you know, um, like, a, a per, uh, what's the word? Like a positron going through a set of brakes and then a bit flipping and now people can't control their brakes anymore. It's in theory designed to stop sort of stuff like that or just random RF interference. Um, right. Of course, there's a lot of modern attacks these days where people are inducing enough interference that you can basically differential voltage isn't guaranteed to protect you. Uh, and so there's a bunch of other steps that they do to monitor the line for errors. So at a right. much higher level, rather than this low level, you know, twisted pair nonsense, basically what they do is they take uh, every every computer on the line, every electronic control unit just monitors the line and goes, hey, I just sent a, a one. And did I, am I reading a one right now? And if it's ever right. different, it starts transmitting an error on the line. That error is really just a set series of bits that everyone knows how to process. It's just six zeros in a row. Uh, and then once it hits that six zero, everybody goes, oh shit, nobody. <laughs> something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, something's horrible. <laughs> nobody is meant to ever talk like this. I'm going to, whatever message I just got, it's garbage. Whoever right. sent it, transmit it again or increment whatever internal errors you have. And then, yeah, don't talk to me again until you've, you've figured what's going on. Right. Right, so you can do it at the at the at the logical level as well. There are some expectations built into the protocol to try to account for the fact that there might be some errors, and um, there's also in the design sort of it's the same sort of thing we do in the in the cybersecurity world. You're thinking about what is the threat, uh, what is the threat model, and in uh, military applications, the threat model is quite different than in a Mercedes-Benz vehicle, right? And um, so, so MIL standard 1553 is another protocol that is functionally pretty similar. Like what it's intended to do is is fairly similar to what you know CAN does. Um, I think we'll get into some of those differences, uh, but at a physical level. Uh, 1553 is very robust, right? I mean, it's 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 designed so that like if you're if someone is is trying to inject you know RF interference, it is much more difficult to induce errors than than on can, right? Yeah, I mean the thick layers of metal on the outside of a jet aside, the right. but the wires are shielded themselves. Uh, they also, I believe, use a differential voltage. And then I, I think CAN operates roughly zero to five volts, and then fifteen fifty three operates somewhere in like twenty four or twenty one right. to twenty eight volts. Mm -hmm. So, good luck, basically, is the answer. Right, I'm sure and it's got like something... redundant buses, and like you know, in case you you know you get like a, a high caliber round through like one of the wires. I mean, it's like designed with a lot more physical robustness in mind. Yeah, its resiliency is for a bullet going through a computer, less so a right. cyber attack. 
<laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, uh, I guess that begs the question. I mean, we, we mentioned to, you know, CAN, and there's a bunch of stuff that's built on top of CAN. You've also got MIL standard 1553. And there are, there are a handful of others. We see like A-Rink protocols in, in, um, uh, in, in, in aircraft, uh, space has its own sort of, uh, standards. You've got, uh, similar protocols that are emerging, but that are embedded in ethernet. Why are there so many and, and why haven't we just standardized around a single protocol for fleet assets? Uh, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the answer is really just whatever contractor made that initial protocol, it worked pretty well. And if, when you make a new thing, if you start from the bottom and redesign your entire cabling and communication system, it takes a lot of work. And you know the right. benefit of a lot of these protocols, it was at least it's very expensive, if nothing else. And, you know the benefit of a lot of these protocols is that all of these computers, usually by different manufacturers, all know the same language of how to speak to each other. And so if you change that, every single communicative chip, all these transceivers, have to change for every single manufacturer. And when you've already got all of the factories and all of the supply chain set up to just communicate over the one system, it is what it is, right? Everyone's nobody's stopping using CAN anytime soon. And what ends right. up happening is people just build up on top of it. So the easy example in CAN is now automotive Ethernet is this thing that happens. And it's because well, we started adding all these video streams in cars, and there's no way you can communicate at 250 kilobits a second, whatever crazy like sensor data as being used to you know, do collision avoidance and stuff like that. So instead, they have an Ethernet protocol that operates much faster, and that's being used to basically carry anything that isn't sensitive to the operation of the vehicle. But if it's anything with the engine, it's tried, true, and trusted, and it's fast enough, and so it all goes there. Um, it all goes down at that lower-level CAN bus. And the same is true for most standard 1553, same is true for space. Oftentimes for satellites, it's really funny. Like The space wire protocol that's often used it's crazy fast. It's like 100 megabytes per second or something, or 100 megabits. Isn't it based on um, the Firewire? Uh, the firewire? Right. Yeah, it's like we yeah, yeah, bought yeah. those Gen 1 iPad or iPods, uh, and, and they had the, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. It works. It's in space. And uh, but like, <laughs> if you read the protocol specs for it, it's like, oh, by the way, we support slower buses. And it's CAN, most under 1553, and A-Rank. Yep. And it's just, yeah, they're plug and play. Uh, somebody somewhere, when they were building the satellite, was like, well, I might want to just plug in something old that still worked, and I don't want to redesign it. Sure. And that company's sure. out of business, and I can't get a new one. Yep. And so they just support the old thing. It's the basically yep. just backwards compatibility. Same idea where there's a lot of security. It's Microsoft Windows. Windows, man. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Same page. Uh, yeah, it's just the Windows problem, but on a physical yep. layer and very expensive. <laughs> and very expensive. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as we know, the cybersecurity properties of Windows have been just like rock solid since uh, since the 1990s. So, well, um, when you open the window, you let some bugs in. You know. <laughs> yeah. Bingo. Nice. Um, well, okay. I, I think that's a really good like survey of the different kinds of protocols. Um, one other nuance here that uh, I think you you got into in your talk was uh, these things aren't necessarily interchangeable um, in the sense that there are topological differences, like the the way that these buses are supposed to support communications among the participants. Um, so, for example, CAN uh, is this sort of chat room with no uh, you know, sort of like no names attached to it. You're just sort of blasting messages out into the ether and people listen to them or they don't. And then they respond by blasting more messages out into the ether. Uh, where mill standard 1553 is, is a bit different, right? There's, there's, there's some, there's some cadence or structure to the way the communications work. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. So CAN, like you said, it's not synchronized at all. Everybody just communicates whenever they want to. So there's this entire arbitration process built in to identify who has like a higher priority versus lower priority message. So, you know, the engine stuff always gets through before some auxiliary sensor does because the engine stuff is more important, right? So the entire protocol is built around just prioritizing what needs to get done. Um, but because of that, there's this collision avoidance process and all this safety error handling exists. Right. Because what if somebody doesn't sync their clock correctly when they're figuring out when the bus is dead, and so they just send whenever somebody else is already talking? At which point, there's a collision on the bus, the message gets mangled, nothing makes any sense. You need that can error frame to tell you, hey, ignore this message. Mill standard 1553 has a bus controller, which means that it just has some guy that's usually connected to the mission computer that just tells you, this person talk, now this person talk, now this person talk. Um, technically, there's a bunch of weird stuff with like dynamic bus controllers, and the bus controller can change, which is a whole security issue. The Air Force <laughs> recommends that you never use it. The Army is kind of ambivalent about it, from what I remember. So I would trust the Air Force in this one if I was anybody. But uh, because of that, there, if you look through the 1553 protocol spec, there's actually no hard and fast rules about collisions. And so if somebody talks and interrupts a bus controller while it's talking, there isn't a rigorous process where you can say for every single implementation, this is how the system will react or you know drop the message or error in some way. Because in theory, there will never be a collision. A bus right. controller is always Because they solved talking. it with the bus controller. Yeah. Right. And if there is a problem, well, and like that bus is dead or something, well, there's a redundant bus line. So you just switch right. to their bus line. What if both buses are taken over? Or what if there's collisions on both? Well, there might just be an entire, basically, copy of the plane that's copied over to the other side. <laughs> right. and, well, what if that doesn't work? Well, you're, you're probably done for, is kind of how yep. they thought it through. But while all of this makes sense from like a safety perspective, it's never assuming any sort of antagonistic actor. And so yep. CAN is a little bit more robust to this idea of somebody being antagonistic. And now, there's a lot of flaws with their process. It, didn't, it doesn't work perfectly. Uh, you know, Sometimes it opens up new attack vectors. But 1553... It doesn't really have a plan for it. It, it. it just exists and it hopes that nothing bad happens. Right. Um, yeah, this is something we've seen time and time again when we do pen tests and we, we build sample attacks against things is there are these protocols built with the idea of redundancy, reliability, and robustness in the physical world where, okay, we have you know some component that's malfunctioning or you know if it's a military context, like some... LRU, some electronic control unit got hit by a round or it's like not functioning uh, and we just go over to backup and there are protocols and procedures for how you deal with that. The thing about cyber attacks, when you find a vulnerability in something, um, typically it's repeatable and it's uh, repeatable with some reliability that can approach 100%. And so if you have redundant systems, it's just a matter of launching the cyber attack a couple of times until you work through all the redundant systems. And then there are no protocols. Like we've 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 interviewed folks that like operators of these assets and said like if this happened to you when you were in the air, like what would you do? And they're like we have no procedures for this basically, right? Um and uh that's you know, that's an artifact of not thinking about uh, like I like that term, an antagonistic actor at the digital level, right? Like we, we've thought a lot about antagonistic actors at the physical level, like trying to do things to the to the asset in the physical world. But um, I think um, to your point, each of these protocols affects attackers in different ways, like how you're going to carry out an attack. And I think it would be maybe helpful to survey some of those differences. So um, there's a lot of, you know, 
DEF CON Black Hat talks. Um, there's books written about attacking CAN. Um, maybe like a little bit of a purview into what are some of the things that you can do, supposing you're able to either, you know, control, uh, um, control a system on a CAN bus or, you know, insert a, uh, a new device onto the CAN bus to, to transmit data and manipulate what's going on at the physical level. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of funny. Each of these protocols have different pros and cons, right? So CAN, once you're on the bus, like we said, it's just a free-for-all. Whoever wants to talk, talks. And so you don't have to worry about anything. You just transmit and your attack will work. There's no authentication. Once it's registered by the bus, you basically just have to make sure that your message makes sense to the rest of the system and it will largely follow it. Now, there's some exceptions. Some auto manufacturers, for instance, have basically worked to say like, oh, if you're going faster than five miles per hour and we see like this subset of messages, we won't listen to it. It's like, oh, okay. Well, in reality, a lot of them have ended up being race conditions. If you look at things like uh, like Charlie Miller's talks, like most of these measures that people put into place are circumventable because they're just a patch, right? Um, and then, you know, the to kind of go back to that error case example, it's designed so that if you receive a certain number of errors, the transceiver actually just turns off. So if some device is, say, you know, caught on, right, like it's just never shutting up. It's designed with good sense from a safety perspective, right? If you if your engine control module never stops talking, well, make it just turn off physically. Well, that's great and all, except if an attacker can generate an error by just speaking during another message. And an attacker can always do that because they don't have to listen to the protocol. Then an attacker can just generate a bunch of errors in a row. And it doesn't take that many. It takes 32 or maybe 35, depending on the implementation. And so you just interrupt 32 messages in a row, and then you can completely pretend to be that engine control module. And if you're talking from the perspective of the bus, well, an engine message didn't appear 32 times in a row. Okay, but every time it fails, it's just going to repeat. And so it doesn't actually take that long in the grand scheme of things for this error process to work out, because you just error the bus in, I don't know, the first couple bits, essentially. So, you know, it takes maybe... Um, doing some quick mental math, I don't know, like 40 microseconds per message or something. Right. And so once you get down to it, it's not that bad. And if you're worried about as an attacker, you still want the bus to operate, like you're not trying to do some sort of denial of service thing, then you just let every other engine message tick up. Because the geniuses, when they were designing CAN, they said, well, if errors are going to be, you know, good messages are more prevalent than error messages. So whenever there's an error, we're going to increment a counter by eight. And whenever there's a good message, we're going to decrement that counter by one. And so as long as the attacker just does that math right and they just keep incrementing by eight and occasionally let it subtract by one so the bus keeps operating, they're good. Eventually the system entire or that one module will turn off and then they can right. just pretend to be that module. And guess who's the engine control module now? Right. Right. And it's even better because the engine control module is coded in such a way that the transceiver, the transmitter, part of the transceiver turns off, but the receiver stays on. So it'll keep working. Like the vehicle will keep doing what you tell it to do. Right. That engine right. will keep it's a safety thing. Yeah, it's a, it makes a lot of sense, right? And you know, it, this entire process makes so much sense from a safety perspective, but is actually just adding attacks from a cybersecurity perspective, which would require you to redesign the protocol somehow in order to avoid or you know do some sort of intrusion detection work there. Can errors can cause uh, a bunch of cybersecurity issues because they're built in a way that ensures the safety of the vehicle and that it maintains operational capabilities. 
but it's in such a way that an attacker can easily just replace computers on the bus without anybody else knowing. And so it can be either quite difficult to build intrusion detection systems for it, or the system will just progress forward. And now any sort of guarantees you have are gone uh, for how you think the system will work. Uh, and we've seen a lot of times that uh, safety mechanisms or things that are supposed to create sort of degraded service conditions for safety reasons can oftentimes become attack vectors or effects because you just induce the degradation of service, whether that's it no longer something no longer transmits or it's going to go into like a reduced state. Uh, and that becomes the effect, right? Um, which is really nefarious. Like anytime you can turn a safety measure into something that's a, an attack surface. Um, I think uh, the situation's a bit different in mill standard 5053 though, right? Because you have this concept of a bus controller, which thankfully they've put uh, rock solid cryptographic security in place so that the, the bus controller is authenticating every one of its messages, right? Josh, I, I, I think the listeners are really great at picking up on your sarcasm at this point uh, with anything regarding to security <laughs> from something made in the 1970s. Uh, no, uh, basically what you would do as an attacker here is once you're capable of transmitting on the bus, you go, hello, I am the bus controller. I would like to transmit a message, please. And the bus goes, sure. Or you don't even have to do the formal process because there is this redundant bus controller idea, right? You could formally request that the control of the system is handed over to you on a golden platter. But you don't have to do that. In fact, the network traffic for that would probably be pretty suspicious. And so what you can do instead is just go, you know, I am speaking. I'm totally the bus controller. And the bus controller will go, say you say you sent some messages that requested data from the engine to be transmitted back to the bus controller's computer. Uh, the bus controller would then go, well, I didn't request this, but I guess I must have and I forgot. My bad. And just accept whatever <laughs> data came from the engine. <laughs> And so like, the entire system is just found on the principle that there is no malicious actor. They're just, it just works, uh, which, you know, there's some benefits, of course, right? Like the bus controller is kind of keeping a steady rhythm of what messages go across the bus. And so there's fewer time windows where like a legitimate message can really occur, but those time breaks do happen. And so in there you can, you can sort of inject some messages. Um, and then from right. there it's, Hard to say, right? Because like I was saying, this idea of there being collisions on the bus or like the exact process for how you transfer control, like how do you determine if a system is no longer performing and then hand it over to some sort of redundant bus line? If you look at the protocol, all of that isn't really geared into stone. It's pretty implementation specific. Whoever designed it picks how that works. And so it's really hard right. to make generalizations about what's going to happen on any given attack vector, which... I guess is a benefit to the defender, but the worst possible way, because you don't know what's going to happen either, <laughs> uh, right? Presumably whoever system maintainer maybe didn't, wasn't that close to the OEM who designed that exact process, right? And they don't have access to the right. source code if it's a federal system. Right. Yeah, which is a whole other problem. Um, yeah. You mentioned like a really interesting nuance of 1553 and is is this 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 concept of major and minor frames. And I know we've done quite a bit of work when we're trying to understand bus cadence for a particular system and then also how do you attack that bus um, that's embedded in this in this concept of major and minor frames. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about that? Is that like part of the protocol or is it just something that sort of has emerged as part of engineering these systems? And then like, what does that mean for the attacker? It's part of the protocol and then it's recommended by whatever documents came out in 1978. 
But at the same time, we're moving away from that, and or at least some contractors are. So the the basic of it is that there's a major frame, and that major frame contains every message that the bus needs to see, uh, usually within about a second of communication. Minor frames are just little chunks of those messages. So some messages, like an engine message, you might want to make sure you see it at least once per, I don't know, 20 minutes. 20 milliseconds or something. This is way longer than an actual frame would be, but let's just say 20 milliseconds. And then some other message is maybe a little bit less important. You only need to get it every 100 milliseconds and so on and so forth. And it basically kind of chunks up all of those messages into minor frames such that by the end of a major frame, you've heard every single kind of minor frame at least once. So it's just a way of ensuring that you see every message you need to see and that things are scheduled out in a way that makes sense. Now, Currently, the bus controller is just kind of hard-coded with that system. We've had some indications that some other people are actually moving away from this and are moving towards more of a CAN approach, which is basically priority-driven. So in this case, the bus controller would just decide, okay, given the system that I know is right now, what message do I really need to send? Like, what data is important for the rest of the bus to get? Uh, and you know, in effect, that would probably look pretty similar to major minor frames. But I imagine there would be some optimizations there. So some messages would disappear. So it'd be a little bit more open bus time. And then you could add more computers and do more fancy stuff with that open bus utilization that you're saving yourself. Gotcha. And a lot of these nuances um, create attack surfaces and considerations for the attacker, of course. But then, um, you know, as we've often joked, there's no panacea to defending these systems. Um, you really have to roll your sleeves up. Uh, do decomposition of the bus, like build representative systems, and then customize the way that you're doing intrusion detection and, and especially intrusion prevention um, so that it considers the nuances and reality of that of that system, right? And so even just at the protocol level, you know, talking about a CAN bus versus a 1553 bus, obviously there are huge differences between these things. And, um, you know, you need to build intrusion detection systems that uh, – take into consideration those differences. But even within systems that use these protocols, there are you know, differences across one 1553 system versus another, right? Can you give me a little bit of a landscape of like how as a, as a, da a data scientist and somebody who, who does this sort of thing, designing intrusion detection systems, how do the, these nuances of the, of the data protocols reflect in the way that you do baselining for, for these systems? If you want to imagine sort of three tools in your sandbox that you can use when you're talking about all of this sort of intrusion detection or data analysis, you've got the raw voltage going over the line. You've got the actual data from the system. So, so what is the speed of the engine? Is this door open? A lot of this stuff comes from an ICD document. It can be quite difficult to get. And then the third thing is all of the timing metadata, right? So when does a message appear? How frequently does it appear? Basically, all that major minor frame stuff we were talking about before. And so a lot of that baselining, you can start at this sort of high-level timing layer and you can go, okay, how often do these messages occur? Is there a way that I can find a gap where an attacker could definitely transmit in this gap? Is there a way to make it so that when I am drawing up sort of intervals or expected timeframes for messages, that I can guarantee that any additional message will appear like an attacker? Or you know, is there some set of timeframe where I know that an attacker could transmit here and I will never know for sure, right? And then from there, you basically just go down the rest of your toolkit and go, okay, I've got this empty space that I know an attacker can transmit in. Can something from a data analysis perspective save me? Is there some 
you know, bit of, you know, the the data from the engine doesn't make any sense for the last time I saw it. Is there some sort of anomaly there? And of course that requires a complete rebaselining of the system because they're all gonna have different components. You have probably a completely different aircraft, though honestly, even from aircraft to aircraft, same make and model, you're gonna have to retrain all of these timing characteristics too. There's gonna be something slightly off about them if you wanna maintain any real degree of accuracy. And that's certainly true from this last tool, which is all this physical layer of voltage level analysis. I mean, if you plug anything new to that system, the impedance of the line changes, just the wear and tear on the transceivers, basically, you know, what environment, the weather, everything just changes based off of what the rest of the state is, right? And so you need to constantly be retraining a system like that to have any idea of something like a baseline. And so if your goal is to not have false positives, well, good luck, because you've got to balance out all of these three different things for each vehicle. You, the amount of engineering hours, you know, rather than just a panacea, like a box that you just plug in and it just works every time. You know, you've got to do a little bit of work for each system to make sure that you understand what it's trying to do and then where an attacker could kind of jump in. Right. And you've, you think about baselining uh, and then sort of the resulting intrusion detection techniques in a couple of different categories, right? Um, and, and we talk about these in, in different ways, but uh, there are, you know, timing-based um, baselines where you'll collect, a, you know, wh- hopefully wide range of uh, of traffic under a variety of operating conditions, uh, and those will give you distributions of inter-arrival times between messages and and, and things of that nature. Um, and then you can use those distributions to say, hey, it is really unusual for us to be seeing, you know, normally we see uh, RPM data coming out of an ECU at 50 milliseconds. And uh, instead, now we're seeing, we've been seeing it at 10 milliseconds for the past two seconds. That is w- so far outside of what normal is supposed to be. This is probably what's happening. There's a, there's a you know, flooding attack on the bus or something like that, right? Um, how do you think about those, uh, those, those, those timing distributions and, and how effective uh, are they in different contexts? So for some protocols like CAN, they can be extremely effective. The real trick of it is um, often when you'll kind of do a cursory glance at academic CAN work, you'll often come across this idea of a timing distribution. The problem that you'll end up with is when you start looking at the data, um, it's not every 50 milliseconds. It's, well, in some states, it's every 50 milliseconds. and In another state, it's every 100 milliseconds. And then there's some range in between because it's some sort of normal distribution, roughly. Uh, you know, it's a little perfect. Maybe there's some weird stuff that was going on whenever you were driving it and some hitch happens. So the real trick is making those intervals small enough that you can trust them because, you know, it's it's easy enough to detect something that's happening too quickly. But if you're trying to detect if something is delayed, like maybe some attacker found a way to prevent your guy from speaking, but they're transmitting a little later because of it, then, well, you need to detect that attack too. So you need some way of monitoring, like, okay, we know one legitimate attack, one legitimate device is going to transmit within these intervals. And anything outside of that will be immediately alert on. And if we have two things within this interval, well, we're going to have to do some further analysis to figure out exactly which of these is an attacker. So they're fairly trustworthy, but it requires a lot more analysis from there, right? And I would imagine there's also a lot of sort of conditional distributions too. So you've got different you know, operating conditions. Um, yeah, what state vehicle, is the engine example. in? What How state is the, the engine, engine in? in? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so you have to sort of 
condition your distributions on different kinds of state that the the, the vehicle has, and so you you can get pretty complicated with 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 um, uh, how these things work. As well as you know, we've talked about um, how many you know how many messages outside of the sort of accepted intervals are too many messages. There are some techniques from uh, statistical process control, like. Uh, you know, when, when you make widgets in a factory and the, the widgets are too too big, like how many in a row being too big means that the engine, the the machine is out of calibration. There's a whole like kind of set of things. So it gets pretty complicated. Um, suffice it yeah. to say, but but that they, they can be when you're, they're tuned correctly, they can be pretty uh, pretty low false positive and pretty you know pretty pretty sensitive instruments. Yeah, because in, at the end of the day, we're relying on these systems being fairly straightforward and fairly rigorous in how they do things. But at the same time, right, you need to be able to say, this was actually a maintenance alert. This system just broke. Right, right. Uh, and differentiating that from a cyber attack. Because you don't want right. some operator seeing a flashing red light. It's like, sure. you're being attacked, you're being attacked. It's like, actually, no, you really just needed to go to maintenance like last month. Right. Didn't. Yeah, the, the cable in the back is loose. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> although at some level, um, interestingly, like, you you know, detecting cyber attacks and detecting sort of maintenance and operational issues. It looks um, very similar. They look very similar. It's just what do you do about it uh, can can be quite different, right? So, um, so there's, there's a lot of interesting um, features of this kind of cyber detection versus all the other kinds of cyber attacks that we've seen in the past. You know, like it's 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 not typically something you alert IT administrators to that packets are traversing a Cat six cable at like you know twenty milliseconds less than uh, you know than than they were yesterday. So. Um, yeah. So the timing thing is is really important um, as as a tool in our toolkit to detect when something bad's happening on a bus. Um, there are others though. So I know you've spent quite a bit of time cozying up to standards like J nineteen thirty nine and the hundreds and hundreds of pages of wisdom that are encoded into those documents, um, so that you can sort of say, look, this is um, of of the world of possible messages and sequences of messages that could go over this protocol, very large space of possible messages. Um, uh, kind of like you think about, you know, a, a word a, a word document. And if you just yeah. mashed on your keyboard, you know, that would be a valid word document. But there's a very small subset of ways of mashing on a keyboard where you read it and you're like, oh, that's Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a way of looking at these documenta- this, these these bodies of documentation and then encoding of the very large state space of possible messages. What is the very small subset of sequences of messages which comply with the protocol that I'm looking at? Uh, and more specifically, the you know the the particular vehicle that implements the the protocol that I'm looking at. And so uh, you've done a lot of work in thinking about how do we take that engineering specification the um, and turn that into a, a monitoring system, a rules-based monitoring system that says, hey, the traffic that we see on this bus needs to comply with the way that the protocol was designed or the way that the system was designed or both. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, some of that work is just ICD basis, right? The system, everything in the protocol says that none of this data is meant to go outside of these bounds or in a certain scenario, X message isn't meant to occur. And so that's where a lot of the rules-based work comes from. The sort of next level beyond that is going, okay, given the state of the system, say some attackers on the bus already, if they transmit some data at me and they transmit it at the right time, how do I know if their data is wrong, right? Maybe there's some sort of supply chain attack and they have completely taken over like the engine control module or something. 
how do I know that an attacker is controlling the engine instead of a legitimate device? Of course, that's a much harder problem. The engine inherently controls a lot of the vehicle. But at the same time, you know, the whole point of this serial data bus is that all of these ECUs need data from each other in order to operate. And so if you're operating on this idea that most of your ECUs are trusted, most of them are acting in good faith, but maybe there's one or two attackers in there, that, well, all of the data from the other ECUs will eventually start matching the lie from the attackers. But at first, when the system is still going, the attacker's data will stop looking, it won't make any sense because the data that it's dependent on from all of these other hundreds of computers on the bus will just not match. And so it's doing a lot of data and statistical analysis and doing different correlations between these data fields to basically draw dependencies between all of the ECUs and all of the messages they can transmit. So you can actually build a rough idea of, even if somebody has a complete control over the system, is there a way we can limit them and what they can do such that I don't care that an attacker has controlled the engine control module because the only data that they can transmit without alerting us that they're there is stuff I would pretty much have them transmitting anyway. Maybe it's a bit off, maybe it's not ideal, but you're not sacrificing mission or you know, some sort of safety critical factor. And I think that's, that's sort right. of the sweet spot. Make, makes a lot of sense. And so you've got, um, in some sense, there's a statistically rooted set of techniques like timing um, where, you know, there's noise and we're dealing with that noise by baselining and figuring out central tendencies and those sorts of things. You have the sort of protocol-based and rules-based alerts, which are um, deterministic in the way that they process data, but that, you know, um, sort of incorporate a, a sort of baseline in these interface control documentations and the way that the protocols are specified in, in our decomposition of a system. Um, what are some other ways that uh, maybe they're on the horizon or what are some other frontiers and, and ways that you can build intrusion detection systems uh, on, uh, on these assets besides those two categories? The main remaining one is voltage-based intrusion detection systems where you are actively monitoring and trying to fingerprint hey, this exact transmitter has certain up and down times, certain fluctuations that allow me to exactly identify it as this piece of hardware. And each piece of hardware, this has been fairly proven, is capable of being identified uniquely based off some sort of training set by just looking at a bunch of that raw voltage data over time as different ECUs are transmitting. And of course, that's really helpful, right? Because if an attacker plugs in a new device, suddenly it's really easy to tell that that attacker exists, where before we're doing all this timing-based analysis to figure out like, okay, um, is this message at the wrong time? We're now within a second or you know a microsecond of them transmitting, you go, oh, that voltage looks completely off for the message that they're trying to send. And so that's the goal. The problem with that work is that it often is incredibly buggy and has a lot of false positives in it because all of this actual hardware has to do with their realities of the physical world uh, and things are just inconsistent. Uh, right. It's very As difficult. evidenced by the way that these protocols were designed in the first place to deal with wide variations of how the physical level may look. Right. Uh, they have to be resilient and us trying to create a intrusion detection system that ignores that and basically just says we know it'll be robust or kind of changes as we go is incredibly difficult and can take quite a bit of work. So I think where the sweet spot actually is, is you can basically take the advantages of these different protocols, right? So voltage-based stuff, okay, it's difficult to train, but obviously if you plug something new into the bus, 
the impedance of the line changes, all of the signatures change, fantastic passive implant detector. Great, and you don't have to do that much work to make it be that way because you can subtly change, but you don't have to be dead on accurate because everything will look different. Database work, it, it's great for taking on that supply chain attack, that remote attack vector who's completely taken over a system. But if you just take that from scratch, what you're basically asking somebody to do is, hey, would you mind emulating the entire vehicle for me and doing some very complicated modeling and simulation work? Well, first of all, if you're trying to do some sort of on-prem intrusion detection, maybe even intrusion prevention system, good luck getting the computational resources to fit inside of whatever you're doing. You might be able to, good luck. Uh, but it's just one of those things of like, okay, realistically, in whatever system you're adding this to, in a world where a lot of these computers are still running PowerPC architectures, do you have enough room to plug in whatever supercomputer you're trying to do, or whatever like 3080 graphics card? Uh, just it, There's no space in the vehicle for right. a lot of these systems, especially when they're so considerate of weight. So rather than try to basically simulate an entire vehicle from scratch, and doing what is already an incredibly complex problem, you can just limit it and go, well, I already have all of this timing analysis. Because of the timing analysis, I know every device is only transmitting the messages I would expect from them. So there's no spoofing nonsense of some sort of engine, you know, or um, maybe like a remote attack vector, right? So you've got some radio transceiver. It doesn't really do anything on the bus. It just communicates messages back and forth. But suddenly that thing is trying to be the engine. Well, there's already an engine talking, and so the timing analysis does great. It just says, no, like you're trying to spoof. You're obviously the radio transmitter or some other device. Don't talk to me. So while well, that's great, and some of the voltage base could, could do the same thing, but it would be prone to false positives. And so you can get a very accurate mechanism for detecting spoofing, which is timing. And then now you have this guarantee for your data work that says, okay, everybody is transmitting the messages that they should be. Based off of that, there's no additional messages. It's somebody just corrupting data fields. Can I find divergences in those data fields that don't make sense with the rest of the system? And so you're right. taking your incredibly large problem set and narrowing it down to something way more reasonable, uh, both from a computational perspective and also just uh, getting anybody to trust your intrusion detection system perspective. Right. And, uh, you know, that this, this approach complies with, I think, how we've seen evolution in IT systems as well, right? Which is the bars on the floor, there is no security. Um, let's start adding sort of incremental levels of sensible security onto this thing to raise the bar significantly for an attacker and make it much, much harder for them to conduct an attack. Uh, and then when they do conduct the attack, we detect it very quickly and we can remediate so the, the, the effects aren't as bad, right? And so it will always be, I think, a constant evolution. We don't have any reason to believe that this frontier of cybersecurity is different from IT cybersecurity or IoT cybersecurity. Um, you know, we're still getting, I mean, last week there was an update to the iPhone, right? Um, which basically, I think there was this Israeli cyber actor that was like able to send text messages to iPhones and completely root them. Um, still, in 2021, when that, you know, that chain of exploits is probably worth $2 million, right? Um, we're still dealing with this decades afterwards. And so I, I don't I think there's any reason that fleet cybersecurity would be any different, you know, we're going to continue to kind of add layers of security and be incremental in our approaches to, to securing these things. One um, final thing to discuss here, I think, is um, the added complication of cross-protocol security. So, you know, we've been talking um, about 
specific buses um, so far today, uh, you know, you have a, a CAN bus or a fifteen fifty three bus, maybe fifteen fifty three plus. It's like redundant bus, right? Um, but many systems. I mean, we've we've been on some military systems where there are a dozen or more data buses on these things. And um, that segmentation is is good. It's actually helpful. It it can, you know, if there's no reason for a radio transceiver to be talking to an aileron, you know, a flap on a, a control surface on an aircraft, don't let them talk to each other, right? I mean, that, yeah, makes, that segmentation is, is a very important concept in cybersecurity, um, but it actually does create some complications in some of the approaches that you've uh, been talking about and how you baseline systems and figure out what is normal and abnormal. Right. I mean, the even just straightforward, assuming all of these buses are somehow separate, none of them are speaking to each other in any way. There's no gateway devices, which probably isn't true. Then, <laughs> you know, now, okay, you have 13 data buses and you're trying to analyze all of them. Uh, so you're having to have a unique timing characteristics for every single bus. One of the timing characteristics for, you know, assuming they're all separate, maybe it's all separate and you can just do individual security processes for each one. But again, they're separate protocols. So your logic has changed for each one. This deployment has just gotten infinitely hellish. Whatever hardware engineer you've hired is about to have a terrible time with all of the different wiring connectors. Trust me, I've met him. He's a little crabby. Make sure you <laughs> give him at least- Phil. <laughs> His name's Phil. Feed him at least one large frappuccino and a double shot of espresso every make single morning. Make sure there's morning. something. <laughs> make oh, sure there's something for him to sleep on in the office. Yeah, yeah. Uh, love Phil. Uh, I'm joking. If our tenant, if our if our landlords are listening, I'm joking. Totally joking. No, no, no. Of course, he's never slept in the office. No. Um, but so you know, that's that's assuming an all separate case, which is an, a, a dream that has never occurred. Uh, and so once they start connecting, it's these gateway devices in between that you have to be really careful about. So imagine that there's you know, these, these devices, are, all these buses are there for a reason, right? These devices want to communicate across each other. So maybe there's like an engine control module that just wants to be on both bus lines. Maybe it needs to be able to receive some sort of higher level updates or alerts on one bus. And then all of the low level, this is how the car actually runs bus engine performance is on the other bus. Okay, well, they need to communicate with each other. But that means that if you're on one bus, now that engine is an attack vector because it can communicate on both buses. And so what you end up from like a, you end up almost in a sort of traditional IT perspective here, where it's just, okay, well, we've got one point. It's a single point of failure. Harden the hell out of that. You know, it's the same as like any router or core gateway kind of device. Harden that, make sure that nobody can get on it, and then monitor all of the traffic that comes out of it. Now, there's some stuff you can do when we're talking about like data analysis, timing analysis. Of course, whatever data is coming into it, if that data is also needed on the other bus, that communication flow is going to happen and that data should match, right? You can do a lot of tracking for how the data flows from bus to bus and making sure it's internally consistent. But outside of that, I mean, the main thing is trying to make sure that they can't pivot. Right. Uh, and so guarding against any sort of attack vectors. Because realistically, if you're pivoting across the bus, there's probably some crazy shell code that you're embedding in your message to be able to do some sort of buffer overflow or something like that. Yep. And watching the bus for that sort of stuff, the, which will look nothing like a legitimate message, is really right. the, the best thing you can do because you have all of this independent bus security that you spend a bunch of time on and can show works fairly well. 
and now somebody's talking about going between them and just ruining all your carefully laid plans. No, don't let that happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I mean, we've we've written a lot of this shell code, um, and it's it's pretty you know it's it's pretty easy to do if, in the default configuration for these buses because they're so permissive, right? Like if 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 a can message flows across the transceiver and the transceiver's like, I don't know what that message ID is. I've never seen this before. They just ignore it. You know, that's the default thing is you just ignore stuff, right? Um, and I guess like w one last question, you know, we've, we've gone into a lot of, I think, really interesting detail about so many different aspects from the attacker and the defender's perspective. The state of security on these fleet assets is just, it's its basically zero for, for the vast majority of the systems that we've, we've seen. Um, and as an attacker, it's really just a matter of, okay, what do I want to do to this thing? Do I have some documentation? How much do I have to reverse engineer? And then you're, you're, the system is so permissive um, and, and accepting of the things that you want to do and the messages that you want to put on these buses that, you know, it, it doesn't take very much time. Whereas you can you compare it to something like an iPhone where there's just security control measure upon security control measure. And you've got to find these chains of exploits that are just, it's like a Rube Goldberg machine, basically. I mean, these things are just truly pieces of art when you, when you see these exploits. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're not going to get there anytime soon. But how much harder can we make attackers' lives by implementing some of the intrusion detection systems that you've you've articulated um, today? Hey, we you know we've actually talked to several sort of people more in the offensive space on this, and even the basic timing stuff. Ignore everything else; just a little bit of timing analysis makes their day so much harder because they have to actively monitor the bus and do basically in order for an attacker to circumvent an intrusion detection system. It has to model your intrusion detection system. It has to know exactly how it works. And if your intrusion detection system is modeling the vehicle, that means the attacker has to model the vehicle in the exact same way in order to figure out what you're doing and circumvent it, short of getting incredibly lucky, which if you're designing with any sort of robust security model is impossible, right? So that means they have to figure out how your intrusion detection system works, take down one of the sort of pillars of trust that you're relying on circumvent that and then hope that there isn't some other security mechanism that's already there. And so even just with timing analysis, you can imagine an attacker comes in and they go, well, the engine transmits every 50 milliseconds. I know that, but there's a rough band in between. So maybe I can transmit the lower bound. Well, that doesn't work. Okay. So I need to get the engine to stop communicating now. Okay. Well, they built in some rules to disable it and check if the specific protocol-based ways of getting an engine to go off the bus ever happen. So I can't use any end protocol ways of doing this. Okay, well, now I've got to send some sort of shell code or something. Well, they're doing a timing analysis, and whatever right. ID I send for my shell code definitely won't look like valid traffic. Right. So I can't send that right. anymore. Or they, or they reverse engineer the ECU's firmware, and they're like, oh, wow, there's like a backdoor debug thing in here. This is great. And then our, you know, the IDS is like, we've never seen this traffic before. This is this is bad, right? And 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 now now you're getting tattled on, right? So it's just like it shuts down so many different uh, possible attack surfaces that we've been using over the past decades to do these sorts of attacks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's nothing like it's you know, it's not like we're doing like memory address randomization or any of that. Right. I, I hope that exists on the ECUs. I'm a little doubtful. I'm <laughs> betting that was always turned off because it wasn't. Invented right. or on by default in whatever right. Windows NT system it was developed on, but yep. 
It's, we had uh, um, Joe Saunders from RunSafe on here a couple months back, and um, that's you know another example of like where you're seeing these different kinds of security control measures that are solving different parts of this problem to just elevate security all over the place. But they they, they had to, you know sort of you can take pre baked firmware or 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 put something in a build chain where you can add layout randomization. Uh, and 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 stack canaries and those sorts of things into existing firmware to try to stop these sorts of attacks from happening, right? Yeah, and that's hugely effective, right? It does, of course, if they're already on the bus, they can transmit any messages, but you sort of add these two things together and good luck getting anywhere, right? If, right. Because now it's like, okay, well, I can't do an implant anymore because that's obvious. I have to completely take over somebody on the bus. And from a physical attack perspective, that might mean taking out the engine control module, loading it up with firmware yourself using whatever firmware loader you've managed to steal, and then plugging it back into the vehicle. And like, all right, well, that's a lot slower than just plugging in a hidden computer. Yeah, it's a lot wires. harder than hitting it with a software-defined radio. Yeah, much harder. And then if it's a radio mechanism, well, you know, good luck knowing the timing of the bus when you're doing the attack remotely. Uh, that'll be fun. Uh, good luck building yep. all of that logic into whatever burst of traffic you can send with a SDR. And then if you have a supply chain attack, it's the same thing, right? The attacker, similar to the defender in, in this case, has to think everything through ahead of time because odds are they're not going to have a remote connection to interact live with whatever device because there's only a select number of devices on these buses that are remote attack capable. Right. And if you have an intrusion detection system that's doing some sort of timing analysis, Chances are you're going after the big bucks. You're going after something like the engine control module. You're not going after some sort of RF device that's only used for communication, unless that communication is you know, specific submission. But if you're trying to take the plane right. down, right, you're going after the, the big thing. And so good luck ever developing any logic in there that isn't just a time bomb. Right, 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 right. Yeah, which is really encouraging, right? Because I, I think there's a lot of you know, depressing things we talk about on the show, unfortunately, yep. just because these, these things are not designed with cybersecurity in mind. But this, the, 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 like light, the, 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 the hope here is that because these systems are designed in a way where we can design really good intrusion detection systems and put security control measures in with, with a little bit of work, even for legacy assets, things that, you know, were never designed with this digital age in mind. Uh, we can raise the bar really significantly and make it very difficult for attackers to um, to do their job. So, you know, if if Brian McCord's listening, um, our VP of Labs, his his days are numbered. If if Matt Rogers has anything to do with it, so, um, so. yeah, hope so. Uh, Matt, it was awesome to have you on, man. Um, I, I'd love to uh, dig into some some more of how we sort of think about designing baselines and, um, you know, maybe we could do some protocol specific episodes or something like that in, in the future. If you, uh, if you have some time away from your PhD work. Sure. Anytime, just send me a message. Awesome. Not that anybody wants to hear about 80 or excuse me, 40 year old documentation for a whole podcast, but it's an acquired, it is an acquired taste, but I think, uh, some, some, some listeners who are, who are steeped in fleet, uh, fleet mechatronic design, uh, may may just find that to be the 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 right flavor. So, do you think protocols <laughs> age like wine, Josh? Uh, in that they turn into vinegar. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift Five and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.